What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and today we're going to talk a little bit about estate planning. Get a lot of questions around that. While we're going back and listening to some of the most popular episodes, this one, we want a little more love to it. We want to show a little more attention because it's some really good info from my friends over at Thoughtful Wells, Nathan and Notesong. But before we get into today's show, I want to say a special thank you for today's sponsor, which is Deputy. And at your practice, what happens when your staff calls out sick? How much time does it take to find replacements who can fill in? If you need to cancel appointments because you're short-staffed, what does it cost your practice to do that? Deputy is a simple app that's helped more than 250,000 workplaces tackle this problem. Deputy makes it easy to schedule staff in line with patient demand, communicate schedules with your team, and instantly find replacements when someone calls out sick. So to learn more and try Deputy out for free, Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. That's also in the link of the description of the show you're listening to right now. All right, well, let's jump in with two of my favorite people. They actually did our estate plan for today. They have been fantastic, really good resources for us at Financial Residency, but also at Physician Well Services with our clients. And I'm excited to bring them back on, Nathan and Notesong from Thoughtful Wells. What's up, guys? Really excited to have you on the show. It's going to be super fun. Thank you so much for having us, Ryan. Likewise, we're thrilled to be here. Yay. All right. So we are going to talk all about estate planning, which most people are not that excited to talk about unless it's you guys, because I know you guys love estate planning. But for everyone listening, why don't you give us just like a quick one minute overview of estate planning so we can all just make sure we're on the same page before we do a really nerdy deep dive into trusts. From my opinion, I think that the state planning is all about planning for your loved ones and making it really easy for them to navigate through your wishes while they're grieving losing you. And I usually describe it that you're preparing to die, which Notesong's version sounds so much better than mine. Well, no one likes talking about death, of course, no, right? Which is why most people, this is no offense to the dentists out there, but it's kind of like going to the dentist. Like no one really enjoys well, some people enjoy the cleaning, but no one really likes talking about death. But unfortunately, right now, there's a, a lot of stuff happening in the world with the pandemic. And I am seeing an uptick of people that are trying to figure out their estate plan, trying to see if they can get a will put in place, because it's something that they always knew was important, but it was never the most important thing, because it's kind of an uncomfortable topic to talk about. So what I want to kind of get at is why is it important that someone actually do this whole process to go through and make a formal estate plan? Yeah, I like to cut to the chase sort of. So at some level, I try to be pretty blunt about what we're doing, which is at some level, we're thinking about death. And I think just like the dentist analogy, it's that feeling when you leave and your teeth are super clean and you feel kind of awesome. And that's what we sort of can provide. It's really about peace of mind of at least knowing that, you know, you've used all of the tools that are available to help prepare to make sure that your loved ones are taken care of and that what you want to have happen, happens. I mean, when I talk to other lawyers and I'm teaching law school this semester and stuff, and I, I think wills and trusts are sort of amazing and sort of a superpower kind of a way because it's like you can reach back from beyond the grave and actually make an impact in the world after you've gone, which I think is kind of amazing. And not many legal documents um, allow you to do that. There really aren't any other mechanisms. Our legal system honors the wishes of people who have passed on if you structure things. And that's what we offer. And it's yucky, right? Because we're not talking about puppies. We're talking about being in a coma or we're talking about having died and taking care of your loved ones. But but we've really sort of from day one approached this from a perspective of trying to figure out like how to make it less awful things that bog people down. For example, like my mother, when she was trying to do her will, she just got all sort of, it was sort of like, who wants grandma's china cabinet? And who wants grandpa's pocket watch? And who wants all this stuff? And as a result, she couldn't get her will done because she was worrying about grandma's china cabinet that none of her three boys really care about anyways. And so in our process, we've sort of basically tried to sort of skip a lot of those sort of issues that bog people down because really our goal is to get it done. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And uh, you know, we're all about superpowers here on the show and through at Financial Residency, which 
will be super fun to see how this unfolds and goes into more deep dives into trusts and things. But we do have a couple of questions from people in our community that I do want to make sure that we highlight. So I want to talk about them first before we get really nerdy. So what is the difference? I've talked about this. There's a whole show that I did on estate planning before by myself, but now having two geniuses with me, this is going to be fun. But what are the difference between a power of attorney and a trustee? Because there's been a lot of confusion in the community about this. And I thought we'd start with this one. What we're really talking about is a power of attorney appoints someone to take care of your finances. And that person is either traditionally back in sort of the traditional name for that person is your attorney in fact, as opposed to an attorney at law, like me and Song. This person is an attorney in fact. And the more modern phrase now is a financial agent, just like your healthcare directive has a healthcare agent. It's a financial agent. So it's sort of you have this financial agent that is authorized by you to take care of your finances. So if you do end up in a coma or if you're sort of incapacitated, somebody can go to your bank and make sure that your mortgage is paid. Somebody can take out money to pay your kid's school tuition, stuff like that. A trustee is the person who is sort of in charge of of the trust. They are the administrator or the CEO of the trust. They manage the trust assets. They supervise payouts of the trust. So in some ways, they're kind of similar. In other ways, they're different. The durable power of attorney, the way that we structure the documents, that power of attorney is in effect as soon as you sign it. Because that way, then if something happens to you, and and we also, you know, you can, if you're going on a trip around the world, and you know, you're going to sell your third condo, you can draft a power of attorney that will sort of very specifically authorize somebody to handle the sale of that third condo. Mm -hmm. But what we're talking about is we just don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what would be required and you're in a coma. So the power of attorney that we draft is very broad in scope and it needs to be because we don't know the future. So that person who is your financial agent has a lot of power over your current assets. The trustee if you have a living trust, you are the trustee. The trust always has assets. And then there's a trustee who sort of administers the trust. And then there's a beneficiary. And when if in a living trust, while you're alive, you sort of serve all the roles. You're the trustee and the beneficiary and the creator of a trust. But there's phrasing in the trust so that if you become incapacitated, there's sort of a successor trustee that comes in and takes over while you can't handle things. And so in a lot of ways, that successor trustee, while you're incapacitated, that person plays a very similar role to the person who is your financial agent under your durable power of attorney. In the circumstances that we're worrying about, which is like you're in a coma or you're incapacitated, the successor trustee serves the same role as the financial agent. So it does make sense then to sort of probably think about naming to make sure that that person is the same person if you trust that person. Well, we want to make sure you trust anyone that you're putting in any of these documents, right? Yes. But the thought or like super high level on this is that you are not your own power of attorney, but you can be the trustee for your trust. So they're two separate people. And that's like a really easy way to kind of think of it as someone else is going to make decisions on behalf of you if something happens versus you are going to make decisions based on the assets of the trust and you can be your own trustee. Is that like a real fair way of putting it high level? For a living trust, yes. For a living trust, yes. Cool. And I'm happy you said that because we're going to talk about living and revocable fun stuff. So why should you never, this was an interesting question and I, I wanted to make sure that we addressed it on the show. Why should you never pick a shared power of attorney of two people jointly being that person? So really what this comes down to is that you really have to examine your own financial values, what you feel is really important when it comes down to financial responsibility, because when you're not around, you want to make sure that whoever's handling your money or your children's inheritance is somebody that you trust at the core. And that's really the human side of all this. You know, the law and all those legalese terms that we have purposefully taken out of our documents to make them thoughtful 
it can get so intimidating and makes you want to shut down. Similar in the way to how doctors talk to each other, it's more efficient for them to say myocardial infarction or the epidemiology report. Like that language is really easy for doctors to doctors to understand. Likewise, in the law, lawyers can talk to each other like that, but we strive to not talk like that because we want our clients to completely understand what's happening on a very human level. So bottom line is when you're choosing somebody who's going to be in charge of your finances in the event that you're incapacitated or like we call coma documents, if you're in a coma or otherwise unavailable, you want to have the 100% level of confidence that you can trust whoever's managing your money or your children's inheritance. And I think then to sort of To speak specifically to the question of sort of co-agents versus having a single agent, it comes down to sort of two different pieces. The first is, if you have somebody that you trust absolutely, you know that they will just, there's no chance they will screw you over. Then having one person have that authority makes things just so much easier on an administrative level. And when you're asking somebody to sort of step in and take care of your money stuff, I mean, those, that person already has probably a lot on their own plate. So just from an administrative standpoint, it's a lot easier to have one person. The other option is to sort of have co-financial agents that have to work in concert. And especially if you've got Notesong in Madison and you've got me in Minneapolis, it's like, and then we're trying to sort of coordinate with your bank and we need dual signatures and it can become a real administrative burden if you have sort of two people that have to work together, especially if they're not located in the same spot. That said, maybe your kids are a little rotten, right? Maybe you're not entirely sure that they will, because that's the issue with the the power of attorney, is that having one person in charge of it makes it a little bit easy for that person to empty out your savings account. And that's the real risk. It happens to people who think it could never happen to them. And so not to sort of say that your kids aren't amazing, but if you're just not entirely sure then having co-trustees that have to work in concert is a good mechanism to sort of make sure that it makes it a little bit harder for them to steal all your money, unless they are really good friends. If you're, you know, both of your kids are rotten and they're both excited to wipe out your savings account, then there's not much you can do. But it's, it's sort of, it's basically hedging your bets. So it really depends on the circumstances of your situation. That's interesting thought process that you, you had there. So I'm, I'm looking at it from when someone asked this question, the way I kind of approached it was getting two people to agree all the time on anything, no matter if they're family or not family, like is always tough. So then you're now going to introduce the wild card being that you are sick or some tragic event has happened. And now you want two people to think coherently is to me always difficult unless they're one's potentially going to steal your money or something like that. Then I think choose a different person completely at that point, but good points there. So let's transition here to trusts. And I think it'd be important to talk about just what a trust is and there's revocable and irrevocable. And so just maybe kind of give us an overview of like what the function of a trust is and the difference between those two. I'm going to let Notesong start off by talking just generally about what a trust is. So again, trying to explain things in very human, plain, simple language. Nathan and I always talk about the trust acting like a magic expensive box. It's magical because a living trust has a really superpower way of being able to sidestep probate entirely. A lot of people think about probate um, in the same way that people think about the IRS. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. And it's not all bad. It's probate is a good kind of checks and balances things to make sure that wills are legally valid and that they were signed appropriately and that they weren't signed under duress. But it can be really expensive because probate can cost you up to 2 to 4% of your entire estate, which on a $300,000 state could be up to $15,000. And I'm pretty sure most people don't want that to happen to all of their assets from working so hard. So we always say that the, the trust acts as this magic expensive box. It's magical because it just sidesteps probate. We call it expensive because it costs money to put things into the box. But at the end of the day, even though you're investing more money by getting the living trust, you really get a really good return on your investment. And what also comes with a magic expensive box is what we call a pour over well. And it just dovetails with the trust so that things that let's just say you acquire something that's titled and you forget to put it into the box and then something happens, you die. 
what happens to it is that it all flows, the things that weren't in the box flows back into the poor of will. So it's still considered part of your entire estate, still considered part of all of your stuff. And there, there are a lot of different types of trust at some level. I mean, there are charitable trusts, which aren't part of estate planning. But if you listen to like public radio, you'll hear them talk about the so-and-so charitable trust underwrites. So they're charitable trusts. They're trusts that are created. They're called testamentary trusts that are created by your will or by your living trust. So if you want to have, if you have young children and you want to make sure that their inheritance goes into a trust until they're old enough to spend it wisely, or if you have a loved one with special needs, those are testamentary trusts because they're created by this document when you die. Then there are living trusts, which are the Latin word is inter vivos. So if you ever hear somebody talk about an inter vivos trust, that's a living trust, which is basically established while you're alive. When we say the term living trust, what we mean is an inter vivos revocable trust, which means you create it while you are alive and you can revoke it at any time and you can also amend it. And so it offers a lot of flexibility. Really, the inter vivos revocable trust, the living trust that we talk about, is basically a will substitute. And that's what it's become. Uh, courts honor it. At first, courts were really suspicious of these trusts because they recognized that they were being used to sort of sidestep the will process. But now they're basically just, they're sort of like a higher end version of a will because they're more complex. They offer some advantages. They offer, in addition to sort of sidestepping the cost of probate, they also are completely private because when your will goes through probate, that's a public process. So everybody, sometimes you hear in the news about like how some celebrity died and they screwed over their kids. That's because wills are, wills when they're probated, it's public. So uh, the living trust sort of allows you to sort of sidestep the cost of probate and also the public exposure of it. That's a good piece with the public piece because most people don't think that way, but you'd like things to remain private. Yeah, if privacy is important to you, and I think increasingly it is to a lot of people, it's definitely something that can be considered uh, that could be a factor. So then you have irrevocable trusts, which are being billed as asset protection trusts. And I hear about them from doctors. I have a bunch of relatives that are doctors and they are paranoid about liability. And they hear at the water cooler that so-and-so has an irrevocable trust. And so now he doesn't have to worry about liability anymore. Personally, I think it's a lot of hogwash because the idea here an irrevocable trust, basically, unlike the living trust where I can set it up and then I can put my house in the trust, I can put my car in the trust, I can put my bank accounts in the trust. And if I get divorced from my husband, I can unwind it. I can amend it. I can break it apart and get rid of it. An irrevocable trust, you're putting assets in there and then you are basically handing control over to somebody else entirely. And that's required in order for you to get this asset protection piece because you can't be the trustee of your own irrevocable trust. If you are, the courts aren't going to honor it. The issue though, is that what ends up happening, and I think this is the water cooler thing. It's like, I put my vacation home in the irrevocable trust and that way I don't have to worry about it. But yet you're still going down and enjoying your vacation home. And if you decide you want to sell your vacation home, I'm guessing there's sort of a back avenue that you have to whoever you've set up to be your trustee to let them know that you want a different vacation home or a different car. And to the extent that you're sort of using and enjoying those assets that are in your irrevocable trust and you have this sort of mechanism to kind of work, it's like to the extent that you still want to enjoy your stuff, you, I think, are meddling with it in a way that really opens up some mechanism where a court would say, fine, thank you for going through all of that hassle and setting up this facade of an irrevocable trust, but you were enjoying your stuff and you really had control over your stuff. So we're just going to ignore your irrevocable trust. That's my personal take on it. It's like, because we actually do use an irrevocable trust in our documents. Specifically, we call it a protective lifelong trust. It used to be called a spendthrift trust. And it is one of these testamentary trusts that I was talking about. And we've created some, we've had clients that have kids who have already had issues with meth. So they have already been in and out of rehab a couple of times. And the thing with meth, anecdotally, it's just like you never really are kind of totally gone over it. You can always relapse. So in the same way that you would set up a trust for your, your young children until they turn 25, the issue when you have a kid that has dabbled in meth is you never really can be sure that they're going to be okay. And so in those instances, we create an irrevocable trust that lasts the lifetime of your child. So they never get to hold their inheritance. 
they will always have a trust where the money sits and they will always have a trustee who is looking out for their benefit and probably paying their rent directly or maybe buying a car and keeping the title of the car in the trust because you don't want the car sold to buy drugs. You don't want the rent monies to go to drugs. And that's how an irrevocable trust is designed to work because your kid that has had issues with drugs will never have control over the money. And that's what makes it a rock solid irrevocable trust. To the extent that you're a really rich doctor and you're trying to sort of game the system, the bad news is I think courts, it's just that thing where it's like, you won't know until it's stress test, stress tested in court. And to the extent you actually wanted to enjoy your vacation home, I think you've really run the risk that, that your irrevocable trust is just, it was a lot of expensive hassle. So, sorry. No, it's a great way of putting it because the next piece was kind of like, what's the difference between them? But then when would you actually use it? And I think that was a fantastic answer to that. So note song, most people have never actually seen what a trust looks like, right? And I have, I've used you guys like, and I've talked about you on the show multiple times because I love the process and everything you guys are doing, but your stuff is way different than other attorneys trust. So when you look at like a normal expectation of a trust. Like, what does it actually look like? Like, How many pages are those usually? Because some people listening have no idea what a trust, like what we're actually talking about in terms of what it looks like. So what's like a typical attorney? That is a great question. Honestly, so much of estate planning just seems like this big, scary, invisible monster. (laughs) And one of our main things is trying to make it so that it's a really understandable and approachable process. And the trusts that I put together are about 18 to 19 pages, like the main actual body of the trust itself. But then we also include attachments with our living trust, which addendums to the trust that make it operate well. Nathan and I always chuckle because we're total worry warts and we we say that we got professional degrees in worrying. And it's so true because like most attorneys, you ask them a question, you know, you can never get a straight answer. And if you do then go get another attorney because it's always going to be an if-then situation or it depends on a case-by-case basis. So the length of an actual trust will will differ by a certain number of pages. But um, but again, it's one of those things where the, the trust itself, if you get a living trust, it covers the child maturity trust, your child's inheritance, the plan for your estate, which just means like how is your inheritance going to be distributed, you know, to your spouse 100% first as a plan A, and then to your children as plan B. Are you going to, oh, I don't know, disinherit somebody? There's a lot of different things that are presented in the trust that are so important to protecting your loved ones. And Nathan and I always say that we think your greatest assets are not ones that have dollar signs. I have three young kids. And more than anything, they're my greatest assets and our new dog, Elroy. Nathan has two rescue terriers, his and his husband's greatest assets. And so you have a living trust, you get the pour over will and the pour over will covers the legal guardianship and the pet guardianship where our living trust covers the pet trust and the child maturity trust. So there's a place for everything in each of the documents. And that's where the lawyers step in and we help organize it so that it's completely understandable so that when you go back and look at your documents, you know exactly what you got. Yeah, that's a really good point. And when you say that the most important things usually aren't have a dollar associated to them, you know, you're talking about your kids. I immediately, the nerd in me is like Howard Stark telling Tony in the video, what is and will always be, you're my greatest creation. Stuff like that is, is totally true. And so I think capturing all of that in the essence of the documents is is obviously really important. Nathan, I'm curious, when we talk about trusts and where things are allocated and how things are going, like, how does it work when you have assets in different states? So like if I own real estate in California and Nevada, obviously California is a crazy state, but if I own real estate in two separate places, how does that affect the trust or does it affect the trust? It doesn't really affect the trust, but what it does, it's owning real estate in two different states is it's a really good chance for you to save some money by using a trust. Because if you own real property in two states, you'll have to, your estate will have to be probated in both states. So if you owned real property in three states, you know, your estate will end up going through probate three times. Instead of a limited capacity, if you just own like one piece of real estate in Nevada and most, and you live in California, your main probate will be in California. But still, 
so it sort of is an incentive for you to sort of just organize everything under a trust. And it makes it really easy. That's the sort of thing you just, sorry, I shouldn't say easy because you still have to go through the process of putting your real estate, you know, sort of making sure the title to your real estate is set up the way you want it to. But once you do put it into the trust, then yeah, it makes it so much easier. And it's also one of those things too, I think, to keep in mind that, I mean, for the person that is going to be sort of your under a will, that person's called the executor. I think we're pretty familiar with that term. In the trust, that person is called the successor trustee. And so it just makes it a lot easier for them because they don't then have to, you know, I mean, imagine sort of having to deal with sort of the loss of you. And then it's like, guess what? You get to handle probate in several states. And don't worry, there are lawyers that will get to help you. And no offense, but yeah. yay. Yeah, no, exactly. So it really, a living trust, there's some front end work to it because you have to sort of make sure that all of your ducks are in a row, but it makes things so much easier for people in the long run. And we're really proud of our trust. I mean, I think that's the thing. We've had clients that come back to us with really good questions because most lawyer documents when it comes to trust and estate stuff, if you get your will from your lawyer, you will not be able to understand it. You could sit down with a dictionary or look up like every couple of words, there'll be some bizarre word that you're just not familiar with that you can look up online. But by and large, I mean, who has the inclination or the time to do that? We really spent the time on the front end to go through and sort of turn all of these, you know, sort of turn these legal phrases into using words that are plain language and understandable by normal people. And so we get questions that are really, it's sort of, I'm always like, wow, like people are understanding it because they're asking tough questions of us because they're actually reading their documents, which from a lawyer's perspective is really exciting because usually you just send up documents, you say sign here and people are like, okay, thanks. Which we have a lot of clients that do that too. They just sign them and don't worry about it. And that's okay. They want to get out as quick as possible because it was uncomfortable to talk about and they got put on the spot. And I remember going through and doing our estate planning in when we were in Vegas with a really nice estate planning attorney young guy and was working for his father's practice and Taylor and I went in and, and I know this stuff. Like I sat down, I'd already pre-prepped Taylor to think of these things. We already had some of our answers already set. And when we got in there, immediately she got really tense. She it was very uncomfortable. And this Taylor is like way, she's always the life of the party. Like I'm always sitting in the back and like, have at it. Like you're awesome. But she got really uncomfortable and it was just like a very weird setting, right? Because you're talking about something that's not comfortable and then you're in this real nice official office and it's a tough thing to do. You have to also consider too, for parents, you're thinking about your kids parentless and that's something nobody wants to think about. The truth of the matter is, it's like we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And especially in this age with the crisis going on, there's no guarantees. And so I always like to say, it's really important for you to keep control over what is in your wheelhouse, what you can have control over. And so one thing that I, I like to say is that don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Because in the land of wills, we always say that I'm going to meet with somebody soon or I'm going to do this soon does not count. You don't get an A for effort. You just have to do it. And then we'll help you along the way make those important decisions. But you don't have to talk about what your final wishes are and what kind of headstone you want to have or where you want your ashes scattered, any of those things. You don't have to decide that right away. You can put that in what we call our letter of final wishes and instructions. And you can also give specifics about maybe legacy guilt giving or there's certain gifts that be, can be included in a letter outside of the will as an addendum. So a lot of times people shut down because they think this has to be perfect. I have to name absolutely every heirloom and every dollar amount and every single detail. And then that's where they let perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah, it's really well said. I always joke with Taylor that like Captain America, I want to just be frozen. And then like eventually in 200 years, they'll bring me back. And she's like, it doesn't work that way. And you're an idiot. I'm like, ah, but what if, right? What if there was that possibility? She's just always shaking her head and thinking I'm, I'm dumb, but I'm going to move away from that because I could go on about how ridiculous I am. Nathan, when we talked about bringing everything together in the trust, especially in different states or with real estate, and I'm thinking businesses now, right? Because some people have real estate that they put wrap up into an LLC or they own their own business. I own my own planning business. I own the podcast in this business. Is it beneficial to have my trust own said business or is it 
something where it's I own it personally and then using like the pour over will it wraps up into the trust if I was to pass. Yeah, I mean, we're talking to doctors and doctors are always worried about liability. The living trust, the revocable living trust does not offer liability protection. So if you have rental income properties, you should put them in an LLC. That's just a kind of a no brainer. And then you can sort of put those assets into your trust. And so absolutely, I guess to answer your question, yes, you should put your LLC shares into your trust. You should put title of your cars into your trust. The goal here is to basically, the way that a trust avoids probate is because you basically put all of your assets into the trust. And then technically from a legal perspective, you own nothing. Mm -hmm. Because everything you own is in the trust. It's You're the trustee, you're also the beneficiary. So you are the one that is entitled to use and enjoy all of that stuff. But from a legal perspective, you own title to nothing. And so if you don't put everything in your trust, when you get a new car, or if you sell your house and move across town, and you don't make sure that you title that property appropriately, it has to be titled in the name of the trust. And that's something we can help you with. Then essentially you own assets personally, and then you will end up getting stuck in probate. Even though you have some of your stuff in the trust, you kind of need to have it all in the trust in order to get that benefit. So it's one of those things it's like, and we don't expect you to sort of always have that on your mind. It's like, you know, if you buy something from Walmart, Target or something, you don't have to worry about that. It's stuff, big ticket stuff that has a deed or has title. But especially if you have an LLC, if you have several LLCs, the shares or membership units of those LLCs should definitely be put into your trust. So it kind of comes to a couple questions that I have relating to this and ones that I've, I'm pulling also from the community. But if you don't wrap everything into your trust, right? You said some smaller stuff, that's fine. But if you didn't wrap in a big thing, you forgot it. The pour over will, will wrap all that in, right? Because that's when you set everything up, it will bring it in in case you forget something, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's, I love it. Finally, I got that a, was uh, a short I, answer. I got an attorney right. to give me a one word answer. It's like right down the date and time. This is amazing. So the, the follow up on that is, if you were to put your car, uh, granted, it's a big ticket item, it's got a deed, but if you were to put that into your trust, doesn't that open you up to your trust open to liability if you were to get into some accident? Let's say it was a horrific accident. You caused a whole bunch of damage and bodily injury and all that. But does that expose your trust because the thing that owned it was your trust and you then ran into someone or something and causes thing like does that increase the exposure or is that kind of like just a myth essentially ownership of a trust title is held by the trustee so essentially for my living trust it would be to sort of title my car i get a new car i get a jaguar because i'm doing so well when i go to the dmv to register the car i will register it as for um nathan cavley comma trustee and successors in case there's people after me as Nathan Cavley trustee of the Nathan Cavley Living Trust. That's how title is held. It's held by the trustee. It's not held by the account. It's so it's a weird, and this is that thing where it's like deep dive into like weird legal concepts that all come from jolly old England back in the 1600s. And it's kind of fascinating if you are bored and don't want to watch that tiger show on Netflix. It's there's I'm never that bored. Okay. Well, anyways, I get that bored and I do love this stuff. The thing is though, it's like the living trust does not provide liability protection because you can always unwind it. So courts look at this and say, sure, Nathan Cavley as trustee of the Nathan Cavley Trust owns the Jaguar, but Nathan Cavley the person gets to drive it around. And Nathan Cavley the person can always pull the Jaguar out of the trust and take private ownership of it. So just the long and short is it doesn't really have an impact. It's like, I think people want to sort of always be thinking about liability if we want to talk about liability, then we need to be talking about LLCs and insurance and other mechanisms to sort of provide protection from liability. The living trust is really just an estate planning mechanism. I love how you were trying to analyze the rationale of how bad my question was as you debated <laughs> the piece of it. It was fascinating <laughs> to watch you do that. I love it. That was a great answer. And I think the long and short of it is it doesn't actually matter. We want all the assets in your trust versus held outside if possible. Yeah. The last question that's actually come through our community was, should the trust be the beneficiary of your IRAs or other retirement plans? And I know that it's also in the way that trusts are worded correctly to be, 
should it be that or not? So what are your guys' thoughts on, you know, in a general statement, this is not official legal advice. I totally get it. But you have your trusts be the beneficiaries or no? Yes. A trust will work best if you sort of think of it as sort of the one stop. You basically pour everything into the trust and then the trust will take care of distributing it. Because otherwise, say, for instance, that you have young kids and you want to make sure that they're taken care of. So you set up a living trust. And that living trust then has a testamentary trust, which will take care of your kids. And if they're younger than 25, for example. So if you put everything in, if you direct your life insurance, if you direct your brokerage accounts, you know, anything that essentially has like a payable on death mechanism, if you have everything just sort of pour into the trust, then all the assets are gathered and the successor trustee, who's the executor of your trust, that person then can sort of set everything up. In the alternate, essentially like, you want to make sure that your life insurance helps take care of your kids. And so then you have to sort of say, like, first it goes to my wife. And then the backup is sort of the testamentary trust. I mean, this would be the verbiage, like the testamentary trust created by the living trust for the benefit of my kids, if they're younger than 25. And if they're older than 25, give it to them directly. And your, <laughs> your life insurance broker is just going to be like, I've got one line to write all this in. So it can happen either way. It's just easier. I mean, to sort of look at your trust as essentially like your living trust is your comprehensive plan for all of your stuff. And that's why the pour over will is important because if you forget something, the pour over will just dumps it right into the trust. Unfortunately, you have to take care of your accounts separately, your life insurance. And again, it's one of those things where you have to put your ducks in a row. And the other important piece there, too, is that even though it sounds really tedious to put all of that language, it's so important, so, so, so important that it has the exact language that the joint living trust is titled in. That's really well said. So note song, after Nathan was going through and trying to line up all the different ways that you'd have to have it actually flow through, this is why people shouldn't be doing this online, correct? Well, that's funny you say that. There are a lot of companies out there that I like to believe are trying to help people. But without a human being who's an attorney who understands all of the if, thens, buts, it depends, it can be really scary because there's nobody behind that. You enter your answers, it flows into a template. And like my test run, I'm one of those online will-making services, Bozo the Clown got everything. And he died about a month ago. And now Cookie gets everything. And he's not a very nice man. I should like completely amend this. But the problem is that they're computers pretending to be attorneys and saying things that make people believe that there's legal force behind them. I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, you don't need an attorney to create your will. You can go to the library. You can go to those online will-making services. I mean, there's probably a book at Walmart, Idiot's Guide to Making a Will. But Nathan and I created Thoughtful Wills because we think it's really important to have an attorney who understands your state's laws, the nuances between each of the different state laws, whether or not your coin collection, which more people have than not, whether it needs to be included in the body of your will or if it can be included in a letter of special gifts. All of these little things, these are all your important things, whether it's your DVD collection that you never watch, but it's your favorite. You want to make sure that your wishes are being honored and that you're not leaving those decisions up to somebody else or worse yet, that there ends up being a legal battle that totally breaks apart your family. So yes, make sure that you consider that when you're thinking about where you're going to go for your estate planning, because you know we're attorneys who leverage technology to help people with their estate planning. And well, conversely, online will-making services are computers pretending to be att attorneys. Yeah, we have something really similar in our field with the robo-advisors, right? The, the the birth of all these online places that you can open up an account and you can start handling your investments and they have all these automated tradings, which is super cool because they're efficient. They're really, really focused on the trading aspect of it. But investments are one piece of the financial plan. There are lots of other pieces that go into your financial plan and they try to answer it through a questionnaire. And it's like, you can't offer that. You're offering a really cool service, but it's not the whole financial planning picture. And that's the same thing with you guys. Like you can technically go do that, but it's probably not going to be correct to the extent that 
you didn't have a human there to do that. So I appreciate, I know that was one that maybe has a little bit of conflict of interest there because you're asking to stay plenty attorneys who are very knowledgeable and experts in this, should they go somewhere else, but it needs to be said and I'm happy you phrased it that way. So as we wrap out the show here, guys, tell everyone a little bit about you because I've carried it out a little bit on the fact that we've used you guys and Taylor, who does not like a lot of this stuff, was actually really thrilled with the process and loved working with you guys. And that says a lot, like a lot. So I'm really happy to have you guys on the show. And why don't you tell everyone what you guys are up to at Thoughtful Wills. I will make sure that I leave the link that you guys have created for our community, which was fantastic. This is what we would actually say. If you're going to go get an estate plan done, this is what we would say to go get done. And you guys have made that in a nice little package for our community. So that'll be in the description for everyone listening. If you're interested in getting your estate planning done, that'll be in the description of the show. It'll just be a link there. But tell everyone what you guys are up to at Thoughtful Wills. Well, the title of our business really says it all, Thoughtful Wills. Nathan and I went back and forth when deciding what we were going to call ourselves. And it came right down to that is that we've poured a lot of heart, sweat, and tears into this with busy parents who work really hard in mind. And We like to say that we're completely reinventing the will-making process and that, honestly, we're on a mission to create approachable lawyering. We're on a first-name basis. We both are from North Dakota, and honestly, there's there's something to be said about that. have been best friends since seventh grade, and quite honestly, we wanted to create a, a way that would make it so we could take all of the yuck out of estate planning, because as we've discussed throughout the show... It's just a horrible topic. <laughs> I mean, I think everybody can agree on that. And Nathan's legal prowess and my, I like to infuse a lot of TLC from being a pediatric nurse. And we really soften the process. And we consider the fact that it's emotionally charging. We use conversational language to help people relax and reduce that level of anxiety that just comes with this whole process. And honestly, we're, we're here from start to finish all the way. We're only a phone call, video chat, email, however you want to communicate, whenever. If it's 9 p.m. after the kids have gone to bed, we totally get it. And so in a nutshell, I guess you could just say that we've created a brand new way to create your online estate plan with attorneys looking over every single thing to make sure that it's compliant with your state's laws. I've searched high and low for people like you guys. It took years And I'm so happy that we did because it's been an amazing relationship as you go and you guys are going across the nation and it is just fascinating to watch how fast you're growing and how things are going. So thank you so much for being on the show. It was really nice to have you both here and kind of get schooled in some of the legalities of trusts. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to give both of our clients peace of mind. All right, it's time for a recap. And here are three takeaways that I'd love for you to walk away with. It was such amazing having them on the show. They are such great people. They had some amazing takeaways, but I'm going to go with three of them. So our first one is, let's hope this doesn't happen anytime soon. But in the event of your passing, or if you become incapacitated in any way, a financial agent is someone who you trust to support the people that are important to you. And they're going to have access to your financial accounts and can use this access to ensure that personal matters are handled. You have this financial agent that is authorized by you to take care of your finances. So if you do end up in a coma or if you're sort of incapacitated, somebody can go to your bank and make sure that your mortgage is paid. Our second takeaway is around revocable trusts. And what that means is that you can amend or revoke it while you're alive. And these revocable trusts offer flexibility during the lifetime of the trust's creator. When we say the term living trust, what we mean is an inter vivos revocable trust, which means you create it while you are alive and you can revoke it at any time and you can also amend it. And so it offers a lot of flexibility. Really the inter vivos revocable trust, the living trust that we talk about is basically a will substitute. And last but not least, the structure of living trusts actually matters. The plan for your state is outlined between immediate family, distant relatives, and like Note Song mentioned, pets. If you have a living trust, you get the pour over will, and the pour over will covers the legal guardianship and the pet guardianship, where our living trust covers the pet trust and the child maturity trust. So 
there's a place for everything in each of the documents. And that's where the lawyers step in. We help organize it so that it's completely understandable so that when you go back and look at your documents, you know exactly what you got. All right, transitioning over to the financial malpractice segment, I have on Michael Relvis from MR Insurance. If you need disability or term insurance, reach out to Michael at financialresidency.com slash insurance. Michael, thanks so much for coming back on with another horror story. Glad to be here, Ryan. So this time around, I've got an interesting one. When people are buying disability insurance, life insurance, really any insurance product, any financial product, the issue is you are encountering somebody who perhaps works with one company, perhaps works with several companies. You don't fully know. You hope that you're dealing with somebody who's going to lead you to the best options and really educate you, show you all your options so you can make your own. And every once in a while, that just doesn't happen. There are agents out there who are captive, exclusively work with one company or maybe more heavily represent or solicit one company than any other company, which is fine. In some cases, it might be the right product. So it kind of makes sense. But it's hard to make the argument that one company will have the best product for every situation. It's very unlikely that's going to be the case. And so this is a two-position household that I've worked with somewhere in the upper Northeast. I won't even talk about state here. Pretty strong household income. Nonetheless, they had accumulated several insurance products over the years. Disability insurance, of course. Both of them are surgical specialties. So disability insurance is exceptionally important. They accumulated some life insurance as well. The issue was it was all with one company. And this company happens to be a little bit expensive for just about everything. And so this is a two physician household that was spending around 70,000, just under $70,000 a year for all of their coverage. For anybody who already has disability insurance, it's expensive. If you don't, you'll probably have sticker shock when you first look at it. It's pretty pricey. It's pricey because unfortunately people need it and use it. And therefore the insurance companies have to charge a higher premium for it. But this was exceptional. And this was also a situation where the female, for example, had the option of qualifying for a unisex-based or a unisex-priced policy. So here we were spending $12,000 a year on premiums for disability insurance. Some of the policy was structured in a, as a graded premium, which just continues to increase. For some people, that's okay if they're reaching financial independence very quickly and plan to get rid of the coverage pretty early on. It's not right for everybody. More importantly, it becomes pretty cost prohibitive pretty quickly. And so we were spending $12,000 a year just on the disability insurance piece alone. And in looking at a unisex priced option, the price basically came down to 6,000, 6,500. Just that alone is a tremendous savings. And these options were just never presented. So the nightmare is here these people are paying an exorbitant amount of money, perhaps for some things that they didn't even know that they were overpaying for. She didn't even know that was an option to go with a different company and to get something comparable. It was just presented as, this was the best policy out there. This is the only one she should buy. This is it, regardless of cost. So once we started pulling back the layers, we also realized that there was a shortcoming in terms of the amount of insurance that they had. But of course, there was permanent life insurance involved as well. So whole life insurance for some people is okay. A lot of people, it's probably not appropriate. And in this case, the biggest issue wasn't whether it was appropriate or not. It was more so that they didn't actually have enough life insurance. This couple should have had more life insurance than they did. And the majority of it was whole life insurance, which was increasing the amount of money that they were spending, but not fully protecting their family. And that's the part that's really difficult because if there's anything that's most important, it's about having the right amount of coverage. Even if somebody says, my budget is too small, I can't afford a 30-year term when maybe that is the appropriate option. Okay, so go with the shorter term, but make sure that we have the right amount of coverage. If something happens tomorrow, we need to make sure that your family's taken care of. That's a goal. And that clearly wasn't done here. Who knows whether it was malintent. A lot of this is just not knowing any better from some agents and brokers out there. But surely it's very clear they were spending an exorbitant amount of money on insurance, way more than they truly needed to, and really didn't even have the appropriate coverage. That's the part that the toughest is. There wasn't enough. It was just overkill, all with the same company. And so I guess the lesson to be learned is when you are evaluating these products, make sure you're looking at multiple options. Don't just look at one company only or work with somebody who only will show you one company. Logic kind of helps in personal finance a lot, I believe. And, and it's pretty logical that one company is not likely to have the best product in every circumstance. So it goes along with that line of, of thinking. Really, you should be looking at multiple options. Even if you do end up working with the same company for every product, that's fine. As long as you educated yourself, 
or the broker educated, you have the ability to make that decision yourself and recognize that, yes, this was the best option. That's why you did it. Not just because it was presented as the only option. A lot of times it's, this is the simplest option, right? Oh, I can go to a one-stop shop. And usually the one-stop shop means they're cross-selling and that usually they don't have the best product. They're the jack of all trades. If you're going to an independent broker and they're running all these quotes and it just so happens that, hey, wherever I got my disability, I'm also somehow getting term. Sure. And I can go through with the same person. Unlikely this happens where it's that way, but let's just humor it for a second. But at least you have one unified person that's helping you do this, but they're quoting out multiple places. It's not so much that, hey, I went to this one place and hey, they were able to get me this and that and this. We see it in personal finance on the other side, something like USAA. Well, they've got home coverage, auto coverage, banking, investments, da, da, da. You go to this. That's great. Except for you're usually overpaying for some of those, or you're getting less of an interest rate on your bank accounts. That's fine. If that's the, the simplicity that you want to take, just know that you're not getting the best, truly the best product because someone out there is probably the specialist in that case. With insurance, it usually ends up being that you're overpaying. And that means you're likely getting less coverage that is appropriate for you and that you need more coverage from a life insurance or disability insurance perspective. Michael, thank you so much. I really like this one. We see it a lot where it's just like, oh, I went to Jane down the road or Bob down the road and he just got me all the coverage and said, you quote any other entity? No, he only showed me this one. So, ah, there might be some savings here if your health hasn't changed. Let's figure out what it is and, you know, see, and take a lay of the land and what's the rules of the sandbox, see if we're able to make that work. So I like this one. This is a good one. Michael, thank you so much for being on. If anyone needs term or disability coverage, reach out to Michael at financialresidency.com slash mrinsurance. Thanks, Ryan. All right, everyone. Well, hopefully you thought this was a great show. Before we end though, quick reminder that if you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app and you can try this award-winning technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. It's drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. And thank you so much, Deputy, for sponsoring today's show. Really appreciate all of you being here. We've been running some of the shows that we have done in the past to kind of get some more love to them, to answer some of the questions that we've been getting. We're going to have a lot of new content coming out in just a little bit, but excited that we're able to answer some of the questions and still help educate and teach all of you about what's going on in personal finance. And hopefully you guys are still finding this helpful. I know a ton of you are downloading the episodes and telling your friends, and that's just amazing. I really hope that we're helping more physicians understand personal finance. And it'd mean the world to me if you could share this episode or any episode that you thought was really interesting with one physician or their a physician spouse. Hopefully we can help them with their personal finances too. So, all right, everyone, have a great week and I'll catch you on the next show. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.